Welcome to another edition of Baseball and Beyond, presented by Masses Restaurants in St. Louis, stlmasses.com, to check out menus and locations and all that good stuff. We'll talk about them in a little bit. This week, on this podcast, I've decided I'm going to run through some of the older interviews, some of my favorite interviews I've done over, oh, what, 20 years? Goodness gracious, 20 years of interviews. I started with a public access show back in 1993. And as the show grew, I figured out I like doing interviews with big names and people that came through town. So I did find ways of meeting bigger names. Sometimes they came through with a card show or maybe they were just promoting something in St. Louis. But some of my favorites came in the early days of doing interviews. And the first one, I hope you've heard it before, but if not... It's sort of my benchmark interview. <laughs> Pardon the pun. It's like I'm Tim McCarver here. But yes, the first interview that uh, I want to play here, I did back in 1996. And it was with Johnny Bench. Johnny Bench was signing autographs. And uh, all these interviews, by the way, are available on YouTube. But if you just want to hear them through this podcast, hopefully you'll enjoy some of these. Johnny Bench and I were sitting back and we're talking about the Big Red Machine and all the great things that happened. And then... The interview goes awry. Take a listen. Pete Rose, we talked about him. Is he a Hall of Famer? Should he be in the Hall of Fame in your mind? Oh. Uh, no. Well, what's the rules? Do you know the rules yeah. of the game? I mean, then I've, why are you asking me? I want to know if you think you think he it should be. It has nothing to do with me. He broke the rules. He's not on the eligible list. What do you want to do? Create a new list or create new rules for the game of baseball? When is this thing done? I mean, he's got six years to apply. Why am I involved in this? I just thought if you played with him and you saw what he did on a day-to-day -day basis. It doesn't matter what you did. There's rules that you follow. Do you have rules on the on communications here? Yes. Do you know what you can say and do? What happens if you break the rules? You get thrown off. Okay, that's the way the game is. I hope Pete Rose gets in the Hall of Fame. He'll get in because of what he did on the field, but he also, if he doesn't, he'll get in. he won't get in because of what he did off the field. Okay. Yes, Johnny Bench. Asking me if I knew the rules of communications. Evidently, I didn't. Uh, that's an inside joke. So, uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Again, I'll post all these interviews on YouTube, and I'll put them in this new blog. The next interview I want to play is uh, from 1999. The great Ric Flair came through St. Louis. He was wrestling with WCW at that time. Of course, Ric Flair, the great wrestler of many years. But uh, he loved St. Louis. And uh, back in the day, back at Wrestling in the Chase... Ric Flair was a mainstay, so we sat down, again I say we, I sat down with Ric Flair and I asked him some questions about St. Louis wrestling and just other things that came up. Here is that interview back from 1999 with Ric Flair. Welcome back to Sports Talk Weekly and today we have a special guest. I said to some of my friends, you know, I'll be interviewing one guy, his name's Ric Flair. They said one thing, woo! Alright. Woo! Oh, where did that come from? When did you start doing that? Um, the first time I heard the record, Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis. So I got it truthfully. Yeah? Yeah, 19, uh, I probably started doing that in about 1968. Now that's something you've done all through your career. I was a junior in high school, yeah. Why wrestle? Why, why pick this career? Obviously it's, you know, it's set your family up, but uh, a lot of these guys right now, you know, there's tons of little independent leagues that, uh, you know, they'll be there forever. Why did you pick this? Um, why did I pick wrestling as a yeah. career? Well, I was playing football at the University of Minnesota, and um, just quite honestly, I became academically ineligible. Ended up sitting around for a year and 
trying to decide what I wanted to do. And uh, I was at that time pretty close friends with a young man by the name of Greg Gagne, whose father was Vern Gagne, one of the great legends of our sport. And uh, at that time, the, not only a promoter, but the reigning uh, AWA World Heavyweight Champion. And through a process of time and getting to meet Vern and all that, uh, Vern agreed to train me at the same time that he was training Chris Taylor, who was an Olympian, and uh, Ken Patera, who also was an Olympian, and several other guys. We all started together in 1973 and spent a year with them, and then I moved to Charlotte in 1974 and never looked back. And St. Louis is a town where, I, I mean, wrestling is one of the hot spots. You guys know about the, the chase. The hottest spot. Sure, I wrestled the chase. Talk about these, those days, because a, a lot of people from St. Louis say, well, the wrestling at the chase days were the well, best. They, well, it, it was phenomenal. It was, just, uh, it was a live show that was produced on Sunday morning at the chase. And uh, in, in, uh, it's hard to explain the, the, the evolution of wrestling, but I mean, some of the greatest stars that ever come along, from Dick Cabruzzer to Pat O'Connor, Luthez. I mean, uh, every big name player came through here. I mean, uh, Bill Longston and uh, Wilbur Snyder, Vern Gagne. When I, when I first started, they always said that if you ever wanted to be a marquee guy and be considered a big player, you had to headline a card at the, uh, the Keel Auditorium, which meant you were wrestling at the chase because that's how the, the two worked together. Talk about um, your, your work on, this, on the mic. Mm -hmm. I mean, was that something that you knew that if I'd work on the mic, that people will get to know me a lot better because I think right now people know the sayings that you have. I mean, you to be the best, you to be the best. Yeah, you, yeah. I mean, the sayings that you say. Yeah, quite honestly, I just came by that naturally. I've never worked on the mic at all. You know, I, sometimes when I'm driving on the road, I think about things I might say on TV, but I just, I play off the crowd, and uh, if the crowd is hot, it energizes me, and, you know, that's basically how I get where I'm going. What about being the president? How's that? How's that working out? That's great. It worked out great. I uh, never anticipated it happening, but uh, the feud between Bischoff and I was so close and so real that, that, that you know when it did come down, it became a real, a real big opportunity for me. I like it. And how? I mean, being a champion, what does that mean? I mean, fourteen times—that's just something that every time you don't have it, you got to think about, it, right? Yeah. Well, actually, I hadn't even—I hadn't even, you know, considered myself you know, interested in being a champion. It wasn't something I was focused on, but when I got more involved again, it's just hard not to want to be the best. You know, when I actually lost about 15 pounds body weight, and really started training hard again, got real focused, and uh, I'm as active right now, and probably as intense right now, and probably as motivated right now as I've ever been. So it's, they all work hand in hand. Talk about, uh, we'll, we'll do these real quick. Favorite opponent and guy you hate to wrestle. Your favorite and the guy you hate. Uh, well, my favorite opponent right now would probably be, um, gosh, there's two or three guys that I can really burn the joint down with. But Sting, usually when I wrestle Sting, you can, you know, I don't mind. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm wrestling Hogan a fair amount and enjoy wrestling him. Um, the best opponent I've ever had in my life would be a guy named Ricky Steamboat. Uh, I've had a lot of great matches with Harley Race, who's a Kansas City guy. and. Uh, um, Least favorite opponent, uh, guy, there's about 14 guys who used to beat me on a regular basis, so I guess it's hard to pick out one. It's 14, and I gotta ask you, can you pick... 13. Your, your, ask, talk about the three favorite lines. What are your three favorite lines that you... And, and I don't know to if you be can, the man, baby, you gotta beat the man, and right now I'm the man. I am a limousine riding, jet flying, kiss stealing, wheeling dealing, Son of a gun, 
that has kissed whoo, all the girls in St. Louis and made him cry? Unless you want to hear. Girls, there isn't one of you that can be first. Any number of you could be next. Um, I don't know. What else do you want to hear? Uh, you could go on for hours yeah, I could, and I, I could listen to this. Um, Actually, the co-host of this show is even a bigger wrestling fan than me. He bought a tape that's two hours. Not you wrestling. It's you doing interviews. I mean, that's what people think about. Talk about the Trans World Dome, May 9th, uh, Slamboree. Pay-per-view comes back to St. Louis. Yeah, we uh, it's actually the first pay-per-view we've had here, if I'm not mistaken, probably in since 1989. We were still at the Keel. And uh, God, last time we were here, we had about 34,000 people. And, you know, as I said, St. Louis is just a great wrestling town to be in. People love wrestling, and uh, they respect wrestling. They respect the ability that the guys bring to the ring. And, um, WCW right now is on a huge roll. I would not be surprised if we didn't have 50,000 plus. So tomorrow morning when we, the tickets go on sale, if I wanted to see the guys up close, I'd get down there and start buying them right away because it'll be a huge event. Rick, you've uh, brought many of great days as a child and all the way through here. I'm glad you How long are we going to do this? Are we, you got a timetable? Or? I, I did, but I don't anymore. I actually, uh, my timetable, I've eclipsed it three, three times now. I was going to quit when I was 40, then I was going to quit when I was 45, then I was going to quit when I was 50. So, you know, I really don't have a timetable. I feel great. and. Uh, as long as it's working for me here, you know, physically I feel great. As long as it's working for me here, I'll stay involved. Rick, thank you very much. It's thank been a you. Pleasure. We're going to take a, a break and we'll be back. So that was Rick Flair from a 1999 interview I did back at Bush Stadium. Funny little story about that, a little behind the scenes. Rick Flair was uh, looking to meet Mark McGuire that day. Of course, it was McGuire Mania still back in 1999, and Rick had brought his kid down, and Mark McGuire basically stiffed. Rick Flair for a while. I mean, Rick was waiting a half hour, and McGuire kept telling him, oh, I'll be out in a second. And to watch Rick Flair wait for Mark McGuire was just interesting because to me, I thought Rick Flair was a much bigger deal. And, uh, and to, to see a, a pretty big guy have to wait for Mark McGuire to come out just to take a picture, then Mark basically snuck his head out, took a picture, gave him a ball. I don't even know if he gave him a ball. And then walked away. Didn't even have really a conversation with him. So it was interesting to watch that. Last interview. Hope you enjoyed that little talk about that. Again, remember this show is sponsored by Masses Restaurants. Bartenders are a hoot. Five locations in St. Louis. You know it. You've heard me talk about it. STLMasses.com is the website to find menus and the directions to the five locations in St. Louis. If you're Listening abroad, like Australia, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, get into St. Louis, San Luis, as they say in Puerto Rico, and get yourself some masses food. It is delicious. Last interview I'm going to play here is uh, one I did with Kirby Puckett in 1998. Kirby Puckett um, was in town, and he was promoting glaucoma awareness. And uh, what's crazy about this is uh, Kirby died soon after, a couple years later, at a very young age, and it was a very sad and shocking death. But uh, Kirby was one of those guys that I remember watching, mostly on This Week in Baseball, but I do remember 1987, the the World Series. I was a, a, in my fandom then, and I got bleacher seats for that World Series game, thanks to uh, someone named Judy, 
my mother. Appreciate that. So I got to heckle Kirby uh, as a little kid. As I, I was a little fat kid, and I was heckling Kirby. But what I didn't know is that's what my body would turn out to be when I uh, turned his age. So uh, this is a fun interview. I hope you enjoy Kirby Puckett back in 1998. Puckett, uh, 12 seasons in the major leagues. And first of all, let me find out you're in St. Louis on Wednesday. We all know about your problem with the eye. How, uh, how's the tour going? You're doing a... Uh, well, just tell us a little bit about the tour, the glaucoma awareness. Well, my Don't Be Blindsided campaign is, uh, that's what it is. It's an awareness campaign, and I'm out to just educate as many pos- people as I possibly can to please take 10 minutes out of their schedule and go get screened for glaucoma. Uh, I guess, uh, to put it another way, I can tell people that if I would have got screened, if I don't know something about glaucoma, and I would have got screened, chances are it could have been detected in time, and I might not be blind right now. But reality of it is, it, it, the reality of it is, is that I am blind in my right eye. I didn't get it checked, and this, is, in essence, is what can happen to you if you don't get checked. So if I'm, I can start trying to save as many people's eyesight as I possibly can. If I save one person's eyesight, then it's all worth it. But I know we're going to save more than one person's eyesight because I've seen what this program can do. It's been very instrumental. It's played a big part of my life. And people are still responsive to me. They're still listening, and, and that's what I like. I mean, it's painful. It doesn't hurt. It only takes about 10 or 15 minutes at the most, depending on who, how many people are there. But it's painless, and it doesn't hurt. And uh, it's a small price to pay for your eyesight because once it's gone, I'm going to tell you, it never comes back. Now let's talk about that story a little bit. In spring training, you wake up one day and you can't see. The ball's coming at you and you, it's blurry, right? And how, what does that feel like that day you wake up and you can't see the ball? Well, actually, I, I didn't get to play that day because I came to the park about 7. I was always the first person at the ballpark. And I got to the park, and, but when I left home, right out of, when I left the house, I saw my wife Tanya, she was standing in front of me, and I couldn't see her face. Like if I was standing here looking at you right now, I couldn't see your face, but I could see your hair and your shoulders and your arms. And so I thought that maybe I laid on my eye wrong or something. I didn't know what was wrong. I figured it would come back, you know. Uh, little did I know that as the day uh, progressed, uh, my vision deteriorated. And uh, little did I know that that day, I would never be, I, it was the last day that I'd be able to see out of my right eye. It was nothing that I ever thought I had. Uh, unfortunately, glaucoma doesn't give anyone any symptoms or anything like that. So I didn't know that I was, I didn't know anything about glaucoma. Like I said, I didn't know I was more at risk than anyone else. So for me, it was a shock. I mean, but... Uh, Thank God that I was, I was ready for life after baseball when it was going to be over, and, and I was prepared. So what I did was just close that chapter of my life on baseball and just concentrate on other things, I like taking care of my kids and being executive vice president of Minnesota Twins and also being national spokesperson for glaucoma. It's been great. Now, you said you were prepared. How did you prepare yourself? Because that was a quick... I mean, you were pretty much in the prime of your career. You had the great seasons before. We all know about the World Series. How did you prepare when, when one day... Your, your career is over. Well, anything can happen. I mean, as we know in life, uh, anything can happen at any given time. And I've often told people, I don't know if you've heard me say it, but things happen for a reason. I think that somebody wanted me to have glaucoma because they know that I would be, I'm, I'm a tough, can, tough skin kind of guy. Uh, I like to think that I can handle anything that, that comes my way. I'd be able to handle it one way or another. And then this was a tough pill to swallow, was no doubt. But I never looked back one bit. Uh, what I did, I just turned the negative into a positive and said, what if this would have happened when I would have been just got to the big leagues and it happened the first year that I was playing? Then I think I would have been a devastated probably then because I played, worked all my life to play baseball. But, you know, I got to play for 12 years. I won two world championships, an all-star 10 years in a row, all-star game MVP. I mean, I, I got to do it in my estimation. I got to do everything that I ever wanted to do and more. And it was because I was blessed and I was able to play. Uh, of course, it happened. I was only going to play four more years anyway, so it just kind of stopped me from achieving what I was trying to achieve. I got 2,300 hits in 12 years. My goal was to get 3,000. That was my goal, but it didn't happen. But I think that my critics and my peers and my fans know that I really got 3,000 hits easy. It wouldn't have been a problem. 
But uh, if it was some bust of candy and nuts, Christmas would be every day too. But I did whatever I can do in the time that I was allowed to do it. And now my crusade is different now. My job is to make people aware of glaucoma and just to get them into the doctor's office and please get checked for glaucoma. That's the big thing now. Now, you, when you signed your uh, $3 million contract, everybody's like, Kirby, what is going on here? Can you, I mean, can you imagine, what would you have made? I hate to say this, but it was like back in 1990. What do you think you would have made in that last contract? Because you were still in the prime of your career. Do you think about the money you could have made? Or you were pretty much set anyway, because you had, like we said, the, the biggest contract early in the 90s. Yeah, I was one of, I was the first guy to make uh, make $2 million. I was the first guy to make $3 million. So for me, I was, uh, I was sad as far as that goes. So, I mean, it's astronomical what these guys are making, but, I mean, you have to understand that the majority of the money these guys are making, when they say a certain number, it's usually half of that. So then as you get done paying your agent and doing this and doing this and doing this, believe me, you don't have much, and you have to pretty much take care of that. I mean, they give us so much money in such a short period of time, and you've got to find some way to kind of put it away to keep it so that you're going to be okay in the future. Unfortunately, a lot of guys don't get to do that. Uh, they get it, they spend it, they buy everything they ever wanted and more, and they give, 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 give. And unfortunately, when their career's over, they haven't put it away and done the right things with it to ensure that they can continue the same lifestyle that they had, which is unfortunate. And I consider myself fortunate because I used to listen to the older guys, the Eddie Murrays, the Cal Ripkins, the Ken Griffey Seniors, the Dave Winfields. They all told me that. Put your money away, take care of your money, you'll be fine. So I listened to those guys, and I took heed to what they were saying. Uh, and thank God that they came to me like that because I still consider myself, like I say, I'm blessed. I mean, I'm not able to play baseball no more, no. But I'm still able to touch people's lives, but just in a different way now. And as long as you're touching people's lives and giving back to the community, that's what it's all about. In 87, the World Series, I was one of the guys out in the bleachers, a little kid, but I was screaming, Kirby. And I think people loved watching you play because you're, you're a little, little shorter than most of the major leaguers, but you gave it your all. And I think the thing people loved about you as you're doing your crusade now is that you really love the game and there's and I think the fans right now don't think players love the game but you really did love the game let's talk about that just a little bit your love for the for the game of base well you have to understand ever since I was five years old man this is what I wanted to do uh, I was forced to retire at 35 years of age so as you can understand 30 years of my life was spent chasing a white baseball around every summer every every summer uh, all during the, the spring the summer and this is what I did this was my craft. Uh, I got a chance, like I said, to live a dream, man. I got to live a dream every single day for 12 years. And I enjoyed it, man. I enjoyed putting the uniform on because I thought it was a blessing. And it was an honor and a privilege to put a baseball, a Major League Baseball uniform on every day. Just to have that feel on your shoulders. And actually go out and be able to perform in front of people. I mean, we knew every day wasn't going to be a good day. You strike out some days, you make errors some days, fine. But I still love what I did. I knew that if I wasn't hitting good, I knew that I defensively, I, if I had a chance, I would throw somebody out of a certain base, or I would make a certain play, or run the bases, I would be able to take an extra base here and there. Anything to help us win, that was my job at the time. And that's why I love what I did. I thought that I was one of the smarter guys in the game when I played. Uh, I listened to a lot of older guys. I always wanted to be better. So if I did good one year, I knew that they would pitch me different the second year. So I really had to make adjustments every year, and, I, and that was fine. Because I knew they weren't going to pitch me the same way if I had success. So I had to make adjustments, I had to do certain things. And I thought I was able to do that, to adapt pretty quick, because if you don't adapt quick, you can dig a big hole for yourselves. And for me, I was able to do that, and, and I love the game of baseball. I still love it, and, uh, but I got a chance to go out and play in front of lots of fans and do lots of things. So believe me, I had the greatest time in the world. Both years, 87 and 91, when you won the World Series, your team wasn't supposed to be there. 87, you had the, the worst record out of a, a, a league winner. 
And then in 91, well, the year before that, you guys were in last place, and you finished in first and won the World Series. What was it about those two teams? I know Tom Kelly must be a great manager because that doesn't happen often where a team like that, a bunch of guys like uh, your Ken Herberts, your Gary Gaetis, a bunch of blue-collar guys going out there working hard every day. So how did you, one, beat my team that I love, the Cardinals, and then in 91 beat the, uh, beat the Braves? Well, all I can say is uh, people ask me which one was the, the most fun, uh, the best team. I said, well, for me, 87 team holds a, a big spot in my heart because we, we were a bunch of nobodies, man. We really were. But we all believed since that first day in spring training. I'll never forget. We knew that we were going to, if we got the chance, that we were going to win the World Series. We knew that. But we knew we had to play together. We knew we had to sacrifice and give up a lot. I had to give up a lot. Guy Eddie had to give up a lot. Her back. If we wanted to win, everybody has to give up. Everybody has to make sacrifices. And we were able to do that. Um, you know, I can't say enough about those guys. Uh, it was so special because nobody said we we're going to do anything. They said the Cardinals are going to run us out of the, the dome. And we were able to keep that to a minimum. Our pitching was outstanding. We pitched way above our means. And we had timely hitting, man, and that's how you win. In 91, I was fortunate to be able to play with still Ken Herbeck. And, and Chili Davis came over and joined us. I remember telling Chili Davis that uh, if he came and played with me, we'd win a world championship. So not only did I say it, and he came over and we did it. And so that made it more special. So both championships are really, really, really special. I really, I can't say one better than another. All I can say is the 87 team was the first because I came up in 84 and I was able to do so much in such a short period of time and, and get up to the mountaintop. So for me, I'm able to wear those rings with honor and pride and, and, and I think it really is a status thing. Do you have a Hall of Fame career in your mind? Do you think it's a Hall of Fame career? I think if you go by the numbers, yes. I think that what I achieved in 12 years, people don't achieve their whole careers. So I think I put my numbers up against anybody's. I wouldn't put them up against McGuire's by no means. But, uh, you know, but I think that my numbers pretty much tell the story. Last question. I know you got to get out and talk to some people, but uh, you infatuated with baseball this year, the McGuire mania, the Yankees winning. I mean, it's, is this, this is probably when we were talking to John Rawlings at Sporting News last week. What a special season this is. Are you following the, the McGuire chase and the Sosa and the Griffies? Oh, how can you not? They're talking about it on the news. They're talking about it on sports. And they talk about it every day. This is something that we're dealing with. I mean, I'm happy with the, with the, the events that are going on. Um, you know, you, you can't say enough about it. I hope McGuire breaks it. I hope Griffey breaks it. I hope Sosa breaks it. I hope they all break it. I mean, but you can't, uh, you don't know what's going to happen. I hope they break it because I'm tired of hearing about Maris. I hope DeJuan Gonzalez hits 90 RB, 190 RBIs because then we're going to hear about Hack Wilson for a while. Now we hear about somebody new and we can go on to bigger and better things. But, you know, the game of baseball, like I said from the beginning, it's the greatest game in the world. I got to play it. It's also the hardest game in the world to play as a sport. So if you can master it and be good at it, you've achieved something. Kirby, thank you very much for your time. I hope uh, this goes well for you, and I hope everything uh, with life goes well because you were a great player to watch. So we thank you very much for joining us today on Sports Talk Weekly. So that was my visit with Kirby Puckett in 1998. So sad that he is gone, but I really enjoyed that interview. have one, uh, one more that I'm going to play, and then we'll uh, wrap this up. Hope you're enjoying this clip show. New one's coming, I promise. I've got some ideas for uh, December, and... Joe Buck has agreed to come on here, so uh, that'll probably be the next one you hear posted. But stay, stay tuned. Keep subscribing or checking your iTunes, your Stitcher, your TuneIn, wherever you go to listen to these podcasts. And by the way, Joe Buck's book is out, Lucky Bastard, and I, I will plug it right here because I think it's uh, – I'm, I'm listening to it as an audio book. I've never actually bought an audio book. First time, and it is awesome. Joe Buck does the uh, commentary, so he reads his own book. And he uh, adds some personality to it. And there are great stories in there. And if you're from St. Louis, you will love this. There's uh, some, <laughs> I mean, I'm not giving anything away, but great story about Ken Wilson uh, that you'll be interested to hear. Uh, 
he openly talks about Tim McCarver and Jack Buck's relationship, and, and I, I haven't gotten through the whole thing, so I'm interested to see what else he has to say. Uh, great story to start off the show about having to use the bathroom early on in, or early on in his career. So it's really, really good. Uh, I'd recommend getting the audiobook if you've listened to audiobooks, but probably a good read, probably a good Christmas stocking stuffer. Last interview I want to give uh, talk about here is uh, Terry Bradshaw. Terry Bradshaw was in town in 1994 at a Bob Costas dinner, and it was uh, just interesting to talk to him. That This is right when we were trying to get a football team, and I just find this interview funny just the way he just literally backhands St. Louis. And then he comes around. So let's take a listen to that. The Immaculate Reception? <laughs> well, I don't think so. It's one of the, it's one of the more interesting plays in the, Nas- in the history of the National Football League. But uh, to answer your question, literally, I didn't see it. That's right. Yeah. You know, I heard it. Yeah. I heard it. But I didn't see it. But it is, it is known as one of the ten best plays in the history of the NFL. I'm glad we were part of it. In the next 10 or 15, 20 years, maybe it won't be. But... To Pittsburghers, understandably so, you know, it will always be the greatest play in Steeler history. Of all the Super Bowl titles that you've won, which one would be the most special for you? Brad, I always think about Super Bowl IX, or the, of which was our first one, because of Mr. Rooney and the suffering the family had gone through for some 40 years. Super Bowl IX was the hardest, probably. Super Bowl X, probably a little more difficult because it was a it was a back-to-back Super Bowl. Thirteen was probably the easiest. Fourteenth was the hardest, hardest. And so the hardest one to win was the last one. The most memorable one is is the first one. You look at St. Louis. Do you consider this a football town? No, not at all. No, no. I don't think football people do. That's really not fair to, 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 to the people of St. Louis because they're, they're known as a baseball town. Jacksonville is a football town. Um, Charlotte is a sports town. Uh, I think the owner here, Bidwell, had a lot to do with how the people felt about their Cardinal fran- franchise. Had they had a different owner here, uh, possibly people would look at it a little bit differently. But this. This, this throughout the football circles is not known as a football town. Do you think that's just because of the reputation of Bidwell? Do you- well, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I think it's a lot to do with Bidwell. I don't think people didn't like him. And uh, so I think it has a lot to do with Bidwell. And the fact that they didn't support the football team when the team was struggling, and, which was for, for a lot of years, really. And it's kind of like you don't miss your water till the well runs dry, and I think that's kind of what happened here. Football in St. Louis is something that should happen. I mean, I think the NFL needs to come here. This year with their ownership, the way it was set up, with the problems they were having there, I think that was all of a sudden strikes started going against them. Uh, they got a beautiful facility going up, and I find it very hard to, to believe that in time someone won't want to move here. And be a you know be a part of that new stadium and and the city. This could very well. I mean, any city in the in, in, in America is a football city. I, I think they're all sports towns. That's why I think you got to have great owners. And they just I don't think had a great owner. Last question: Do you think the Rams or maybe uh, any other teams over there would be coming here? You're an insider. Yeah, and I'm not a really an insider. I I, I know there's talk about the Rams uh, looking at Baltimore and 
there will probably, could be, I, I, of all the teams in the National Football League, the one team that would want to make a move and look because they're not drawing is, is the Rams. Now, how would they fit in here? I don't know. But that would be the one team, with the exception of New England, which has new ownership now. They're going to stay in Boston. But I, I would think the only team out there really to move, potentially move, would be the Rams. So that is all-time great Terry Bradshaw. <laughs> So that was Terry Bradshaw from 1994, back when I was doing interviews for Sports Talk Weekly. And yes, oh, Jacksonville, definitely a football town. <laughs> I, I'm just that that one made me laugh. But uh, crazy that we didn't have a football team then, and we don't have one now. But I don't miss it. I don't know about you, but I'm not watching it. I don't care about the NFL. Looks like a lot of people aren't watching, and that's good to hear. Maybe uh, maybe the bubble has burst. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed some of these older interviews. I have a just a stash of these things that just laying on the floor, needing to be played, needing to be heard again, heard again, <laughs> needing to be heard again. So coming up, like I said, next couple of weeks, we'll have a couple new interviews and maybe go back and check the vault one more time and baseball season will be coming and spring training will be here and we'll get back to some more baseball interviews. We've got some hockey guys that we'll be talking to. Before that, we got the Winter Classic coming up, so a lot of fun coming up. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Baseball and Beyond. Again, presented by my favorite restaurant, Masses, stlmasses.com. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you soon with another brand-new stinking interview. Thanks for listening.